LBZ original. Why don't I? You got it right. Like, why don't we just redo just the very beginning of the top to mention it? You can't do that. That's fake. Yeah, it's fake. You, you want to fake this stuff? Yeah, I want to fake it. Turning it into Absolutely. So we're, not, the, we're, you we're not WWE, John. <laughs> we could try to be. A local TV news station doing its own podcast? Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Yes! Yes, we can! <laughs> this is Studio BZ. I'm John Keller. And I'm Paula Evan. So, John, happy Monday. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I guess. It's President's Day. And the weather's nice. Which is always interesting. Don't you feel like they're cheated now? I mean, I thought George Washington's birthday, Lincoln's birthday, it made them real people to kids. Now that it's just President's Day and people sell cars, I, I don't know. I just feel like kids aren't learning about Well, why don't presidents. we give up the pretense and just have yeah. it be car, new car appreciation <laughs> day? I, I just think it's lost a lot. Yeah. Don't you? Well, the presidency itself has well, lost a lot, but let's, this let's is, not go down that alley. This is part of the current debate. <laughs> um, speaking of things that have been lost a lot, uh, people in Massachusetts voted to legalize pot over a year ago. Mm-hmm. It was that other thing that happened in November of 2016. Yeah. Um, so where's that going to go? Yeah, and what sort of political infighting is the whole thing generating? We'll dip into that. I know, we're just going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about a first-person account with one of the most enormously talented people at WBZ who has been here, and he is just a great reporter, David Robichaud. He covered a local tragedy last week. And so as he was out on the story... We asked him to file sort of an audio file of his death. Yeah, and if you've ever said to yourself, how can the media go around sticking mics in the faces of grieving people? And how do they uh, get up the nerve to do that? Or are they ice cold? That kind of thing. I think a lot of those questions will be answered by Dave's first person account. But also, too, how... It is for not not that anybody sits around feeling sorry for reporters. You know, this is what we do. No. Everybody uh, who is in this business understands what they're doing, but it does have an effect, uh, and it uh, and you you can really hear um, how Roby and his photographer feel as they're covering the deaths of these two teenage girls in Needham. And then you know, talk about a story we've been hearing a lot about lately: the meltdown, if you will, of public esteem for the tech giants. Yeah. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, uh, the guys at Twitter, Google, they're feeling the heat lately in, in no small part because of the toxic effects their products are having on our democracy, on child rearing in this country. And uh, I, I had a, a, a really interesting conversation with a former New York Times tech writer who's written a book about the rise of Silicon Valley and the people and the players and personalities involved in it. And let me just put it this way, it's none too flattering. Well, even since you spoke with him, what happened this weekend after the indictments came down of the 13 Russian nationals and then the president tweeted out this vice president at Facebook in charge of ads, who kind of seemed to want to bolster the president's argument and say none of the ads were bought until after Election Day. Uh, And then I I noticed a former Twitter executive sort of launched back at him on Twitter. So it it really, it's spiraling into all kinds of areas. Trouble in paradise. Yeah, it is. It's it's a lot of trouble. Um, 
But first, we do have to talk about Boston in a bit of mourning over a local character. Not everyone is in mourning, Paula. Not everyone is in mourning. Explain why. Yeah, well, why don't you, while I percolate to a full boil here, why (laughs) don't you give the nuts and bolts of what happened with Larry, uh, I'm using quote fingers here. Yeah, Larry is one of these not very attractive wild turkeys that has been haunting an intersection in, was it West Roxbury? I think it was West Roxbury. Stopping traffic, just getting in the way. Larry has no problem wading into traffic at the intersection of the VFW Parkway and Baker Street in West Roxbury. This turkey creates a huge traffic jam. He's all over the place. What's behind the behavior? Well, since Larry's not talking, we asked a wildlife expert. Larry apparently was in heat. This was Larry's apparent effort to get a girl. Uh, if, uh-huh. if we are to believe Larry, in fact, was a male turkey. And he thought um, the various SUVs trying shiny. to navigate him were, were, yeah. were potential dates. They're shiny, they're curvy, I don't know. They caught Larry's eye. Well, but you're, you're not amused. Let me say that the only heat I really want to talk about in connection with turkeys is a 475-degree <laughs> oven. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to make it clear. I'm an animal lover. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, dogs, no one especially loves his dogs more than you. Uh, all kinds of animals, big on animal rights and so forth. Mm. But I draw the line at turkeys. <laughs> now, I'm sure there are some lovable turkeys somewhere. I've never met one. Uh, but in fact, uh, as you noted in the case of Larry, mm. they're they're getting more and more brazen. Very uh, about uh, the way they strut around. They like to attack cars. Uh, you wouldn't want to mess with one if you encountered one on the sidewalk. They can be as really nasty. My dog and I often do. We see them just roaming the streets of my town. But my my profound hatred and contempt for turkeys really dates back to a few years ago. uh, Our regular viewers may know every year around Thanksgiving time, I do the turkeys of the year. Right, gobble gobble, there's a great sound effect. Newsmakers, politicians mainly, but uh, we choose the top local and national and cultural turkeys of the year and have fun with that. Well, one year, um, my esteemed colleagues in the promotion department decided it would be fun to have me shoot a bunch of promos for this feature at a turkey farm north of Boston. <laughs> People have seen this. Okay, You're in the farm. Fine, I'm on game. So yeah. I put on some boots and, mm-hmm. uh, and my WBZ parka. And they had me in the middle of a barn, I'd say containing several thousand turkeys, oh right for the slaughter. Mm. And we spent about an hour shooting these promos. Those turkeys were the most obnoxious, <laughs> aggressive, vile, disgusting animals. Were they vicious to you? They were pecking at me mm. and squawking. And admittedly, I guess I invaded their quote-unquote home. But uh, any remaining shred of empathy <laughs> of I might affection. have had for turkeys vanished that day. They're just detestable. The people they, at PETA would not want to hear about well, this. Well, I'm sorry. But I think what you're speaking to probably is what made them so um, delicious looking, I guess, to the pilgrims. I mean, remember, was it Ben Franklin wanted the turkey to be the national symbol? Right. Not the eagle. Right. right? That was the first suggestion. But I think people, perhaps in those days, easily killed them because they were so 
detestable. Well, I guess so. Then how do you explain our apparent love affair, at least uh, in in the uh, the ranks of local officials in this state, for the coyote? Yeah. You know, there's another uh, kind of obnoxious critter, if you ask me. And they will pick up little kittens they and puppies will. and it, kill it's them. It's only a matter of time. There have been some incidents involving humans. Yeah. It's only a matter of time before a coyote snatches a small child well, true. and makes think, off with it. Don't you think, though, the one part of me that has a lot of empathy for the turkey and the coyote is our massive housing development has displaced them, right? I mean, this is why years ago, I don't think you'd see a turkey strutting around West Rock. I didn't say I was all that crazy about people either. (laughs) Let me stipulate that. Um, Maybe you can forget how much you hate turkeys with a little pot. Um, why haven't we had this sort of Amsterdam effect hit us yet? I mean, you, you can't, I thought by now, surely once recreational marijuana was legalized, it was going to be much quicker than this. And you were going to have pot dispensaries all over the state up running. Oh my gosh, the tax money, money could be rolling in for everybody. But here we are in Massachusetts, and once again, things are moving awfully slow, as it has with medical marijuana. Well, you know, I would compare the way this is all rolled out, or the rather the halting way in which it's rolling yeah. out, with our handling of legalized gambling and the casinos. Yeah. Uh, the the direct allegory to pot, which is alcohol, yeah. uh, we allow booze to be served in a variety of settings, yeah. right? Right, ball games, the ball games, concerts. bowling alleys, uh, all sorts of places where kids are. Uh, Some kids now seem to think they they look at a joint like a beer. Now, I know there are some physicians that will argue with that, but there does seem to be a massive generational divide over how evil or not marijuana is. And don't you think this plays into this whole thing? If we're up to young people, it would be sold everywhere tomorrow. But don't you think there's a cumulative effect or a long-lasting effect of the way marijuana has been viewed as the gateway drug, especially over the last 50 years? Well, a lot of people in law enforcement really don't like the idea. And, you know, I've talked to young, you know, young cops, you know, 20-something, not old fuddy-duddies who think, oh, it's, you know, it's the the gateway to sin, reefer madness, all that stuff, who've said that they uh, are very concerned about the situation that might occur. Yeah. But anyway, that, that horse has left the barn. It is legalized. And uh, what the head of the uh, Cannabis Commission uh, mm-hmm. is saying, he and the other commissioners is... Now this is Stephen Hoffman. Yeah, Stephen Hoffman. He uh, is interested in uh, following the law, following mm-hmm. the spirit and letter of the law, and maximizing revenues. That's the mandate they've been given. But lo and behold, as soon as they started talking about, you know, allowing uh, uh, edibles, not not smokable marijuana, but edibles to be available in uh, uh, yoga uh, cookies, and lollipops, and, so forth, and gummy bears. All of a sudden, Amora right. Healy, the Attorney General, Governor Baker. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Well, what do you mean? Wait a minute! And explain what. We're in this period of public comment, 
right? Right. So what does that mean? To- well, they're getting ready to write the final regulations. Right. Those are due la- uh, later on in the spring. Mm-hmm. And, and then on July 1st, if people thought on July 1st automatically, uh, you know, Tony's Variety down the corner is mm-hmm. going to be uh, ready to sell you a, a you know a loose uh, few loose joints. Right. Forget it. That's not going to be uh, happening right away. There may be very few places where you can legally buy uh, on July 1st, but. Again, you know, the question is, what did we, what did the voters approve? Yes. Well, uh, and this thing, and, and and how is the federal government going to play into all this, considering how Jeff Sessions feels about marijuana and their influence? How is that going to affect, you bring up the good point of um, investors. Like, who's going to want to risk money if it's in this much peril at this point? Um, so it'll be interesting. It's interesting to hear what Stephen Hoffman has to say about the schedule moving forward and how we're not exactly going to be Amsterdam and, by the 4th of July. And you can tell from the stress in his voice yeah. how intensely politicized this is already. And it's not going to get any easier as we go forward. All right. Steve, do you feel pressure to go slow Maybe start out with a modest availability of recreational marijuana and then ramp up over time, uh, that kind of thing? I don't recall ever talking about, are we going too fast? Are we going too slow? Are we over-regulating? Are we under-regulating? Um, what we talked about is what's the right thing to do to uh, honor the will of the voters to make this product accessible and safe and to do so in a way that enhances public health and, and, and public safety. And, and that's what we're, we're really trying to do. So, so I... I'm not sure I know how to respond to are we going too fast or too slow because that, that was not one of the things we discussed. What we're trying to do is is get it right and make this industry, as I said, safe and fair and and diverse in terms of participation by smaller businesses as well as bigger businesses and women and veterans and minorities and, um, as I said, those, uh, those residents of disproportionately impacted communities. And one of the things that's an argument against kind of staggering, and I'm not, we, you know, we're going to talk about about this and you know until we have final regulations I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out but one of the arguments against staggering is that some of the smaller players um, will um, not have the opportunity to get into the market until later on um, the bigger players um, are you know given priority the people that are already in the medical marijuana industry have priority review of their applications according to law and so there's some concern is that we delay um, allowing for some of these other categories of licenses that we're going to tilt the uh, the field in favor of the big players away from the small smaller players, and I think that's something we're trying to avoid. Let's go over the calendar a little bit just to remind people sure. of, of where you are. So so we talked about how April 1st, you'll start reviewing applications. June 1st mm-hmm. is the first day uh, you can start accepting applications. Then by July 1st, uh, that is the expectation that people Correct. will be able to open for business. In the meantime, people are mm-hmm. hearing that Attorney General Jeff Sessions has uh, revoked the Obama letter and is on the right. federal level going to go after states where legalization has passed on ballot measures. So I think the average right. person just wonders what to think uh, and and how is this going to go? I mean, you know, if I if July first, if somebody goes into a a place and you know, orders up sure. some recreational marijuana, can they be arrested? Are the feds going to show up? Yeah. What's the deal? Yeah, I yeah. Uh... 
I, well, I'm not, I'm not going to forecast what the feds are going to do. I, I think that's outside the purview of both my, uh, my uh, job as well as my competence. Um, but there's no question whatsoever that, that Sessions' announcement has changed the risk profile um, for people that are considering entering this industry. Um, I, I, I'm not so sure I'd, I'd worry if I was a consumer, but if I was a business person thinking about making an investment in this industry, there's no question whatsoever that, that my risk profile or my analysis of the risk will, will have changed. Since Sessions made his uh, his remarks uh, and rescinded the Cole memorandum, uh, I, I'm not going to speculate on how people are going to respond to that change. But I'm certain they're all thinking about how that changes the risk return analysis they're doing to decide whether or not to enter this industry. Steve, one thing I was curious about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as I recall, uh, just recently the Baker administration kind of reached out to you folks at the commission saying, whoa, let's let, let's lower our uh, our horizons a little bit here in terms sure. of social consumption options for people. There was talk about, you know, yoga outlets where you could uh, get high, other kinds of venues. Uh, let's, right. let's modify our horizons. That surprised sure. me because with the gaming commission, the experience has been, and I've seen this in the past with authorities like Mass Water Resources Authority, Turnpike Authority. The politicians on Beacon Hill create a new law. They hand it off to a commission or an authority to administer, and they wash their hands of it. It's plausible deniability for them. You, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, handle all the controversy, and we'll just back off and defer all inquiries over to the commission. Apparently right. not so with regard to the Cannabis Commission. All right. Yeah, I uh, you know look, we we obviously have a great deal of respect for the governor and and his position and and welcome uh, the input we've gotten both directly from him and from his executive agencies and and we're going to take it very seriously and, and weigh it. Um, I'm not going to speculate about about why he's weighed in the way he has. I will say that unlike the other things that you mentioned in terms of gambling and and, and water resources, this is an incredibly contentious issue. Um, and uh, as I said a few times, you know, it was a 53-47 percent. Um, uh, vote in terms of approving the voter initiative in 2016, which means that there's a lot of uh, energy and weight on both sides of this debate. And so perhaps, you know, the reason people are weighing in in uh, this industry differently than they have as you, in the examples you uh, you refer to is just because of the contentiousness of uh, this, uh, this industry. But uh, again, uh, we welcome the input. It's part of the process that we designed, and we're going to we'll certainly take all the comments uh, very seriously as we evaluate changes uh, um, to our draft regulations, but I, I, I can't speculate on why the governor... Uh, were you surprised? Were you surprised that he did so? Um... No, not, not really. As I said, I, you know, what, the, the surprise for me uh, goes back to my, my initial days in September when I was first appointed, which is um, at that point I realized how contentious this issue was and how passionate people on all sides of the debate were. So the mm-hmm. fact that the governor you know, feels very strongly on this issue um, is not a surprise to me because, frankly, most people around the state feel very strongly one way or the other on this issue. And we should point out before we let you go that you did vote against the 2016 ballot question uh, and like a lot of uh, the leadership in the state, but you have have been appointed to head up the commission, and and Massachusetts needs to have staffs trained. Tracking technology needs to be ready, and so your commission still has a lot of work to do. 
We absolutely do. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I would not have, even though I did vote against the initiative, as you pointed out, I would not have taken this job unless I was committed to do the job I was appointed to do. Uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. We have an enormous amount of work to do uh, in a short period of time. We are staffing up as aggressively as we can. Um, and I've said before that I think the governor and the attorney general and the treasurer deserve a lot of credit. I think they put together a very strong commission. Uh, we come from very different backgrounds, but collectively, I think we have the requisite skills necessary to do the job. But uh, there's no question uh, there's a lot of work to do. And given the diplomatic skills you're being uh, called on to apply here, when you're done putting <laughs> my, my this... Wife, my, wife, my, my wife wouldn't agree with you. Uh, <laughs> well, when you're, done putting this, when you're done putting this baby to bed, what is it, on to North Korea for you, Steve? <laughs> no, no, actually, uh, I think I might go to Israel. <laughs> okay, Israel good luck with that. Middle East. <laughs> Stephen Hoffman, chairman of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. David Robichaud, I'm with photographer Matt Coulson. We're on a tragic story. Uh, two Needham High School students, Talia Newfield and her best friend, Adrian Garado, killed this weekend, both hit by cars not far from the high school. Uh, we just went by the address that we thought was the driver of one of the cars, but we had no luck there. Now we're headed to the high school where there's a makeshift memorial out front with flowers. We're at the scene now, the makeshift memorial next to Needham High School. And the Needham police have informed us or asked us not to approach any students as the students are putting down flowers and sometimes pictures of their friends who were killed, Talia and Adrian. And Matt, you know, I mean, people ask us all the time, why do you have to cover stories like this? What's the point? What would you even ask these students in the first place? And I guess my answer to that question is, you don't want these young women to become statistics. You want to tell the viewers who they were, as painful as that could be right now. Really, honestly, when it comes to this, you know, it's the, we need to remember, and everyone needs to remember, they're victims, and we're, we're trying to memorialize them at this point. And, you know, we know that these two girls probably have stories that nobody knows. And I always think to myself in a story like this is the number one thing is to be respectful. Um, oftentimes when you're dealing with teenagers, they're be highly, highly emotional, which is understandable. And I've been on stories before like this, unfortunately, many times where young people are killed in car accidents. And we go to the makeshift memorial, we go to the scene, and teenagers are swearing at us. I've been threatened before. And the only thing you can do is walk away. You can't defend what you're doing at that point. Our reporter, Anna Myler, said every reporter was crying. It is impossible in a story like this to try to remain neutral emotionally you're going to get emotionally involved it, it, well, if, you, if you don't get emotionally involved if you don't you cannot go to a scene like this where these teenagers for no good reason lost their lives and you can't if you can't feel that then boy 
we wrapped up our story in Needham. And uh, just looking into the eyes of some of these kids, many of them sobbing. Just at that point, you just don't want to be there. It's one of those days where I think all of us pause briefly and say, what am I doing? Um, I know personally I can say that. So the father of one of the young victims came this morning. He expressed his frustration at not knowing who was responsible for the deaths of his daughter and her best friend. The district attorney right now will only say that there are circumstances that are very complicated. So who knows what that means? Um, They're keeping everything close to the vest, but I think the family would really like to know what's happening. There can never be any closure for anybody involved in this story, but I think maybe weeks from now, maybe they'll at least know why. Perhaps they'll at least have some answers. Call this, I don't know, an insta killer reaction. I'm gonna th- th- just hit this, hit you with this New York Times. Are case. you sure you want to do this? I, I, I think I'm fully prepared, but are you? That's the question. Well, I guess we'll, we're going to find out. Uh, there is this New York Times piece that we thought would just get the greatest reaction from you, considering how you feel about our friends in Silicon Valley at the moment. Yeah. Um, Have you heard about this? The making of a crypto utopia in Puerto Rico. There is a group of entrepreneurs, dozens of them, who are recent billionaires because of their investment in Bitcoin. Oh boy. And the blockchain. They've decided they're almost exclusively men as the New York Times points out, that the perfect thing to do because of the tax situation, no federal personal income taxes, no capital gains tax, and favorable business taxes, that they are going to all gather and build a crypto utopia in Puerto Rico. They want to call it, um, oh, where is it? Puertopia. (laughs) It's, It's going to be Puerto Crypto. The, the meeting in March where they discuss this and they want to build their own society. So they're going, they've taken over resorts and various buildings in Puerto Rico. They are going to have their own cryptocurrency there and they're going to avoid all our taxes and they're going to have a brave new world. Uh, and this what is do gonna, you think of these people? This is going to benefit the ravaged population how? Right. Well, uh, not much. Um, but apparently so it's a tax dodge. they think, um, I don't know. Here's a quote from uh, Matt Clemenson, 34, founder of Lottery.com, which is using blockchain in lotteries. Okay, We're benevolent capitalists building a benevolent economy. Puerto Rico has been this hidden gem, this enchanted island that's been consistently overlooked and mistreated. Maybe 500 years later, we can make it right. 
So they're hoping that their portotopians hmm. will arrive. I mean, I suppose I local employment will go up if they live in these buildings and have a resort. But, will, but will this there, is this will is their idea. Will there be open bar in crypto utopia? <laughs> open pop bar. I mean, I come on. <laughs> Maybe you an know, open pop bar. The funny thing is, I bet you these creeps were inspired by Mark Zuckerberg, who several months ago. They're rolling out some new virtual reality toy that they're developing out there in La La Land. Uh, Had himself and one of his colleagues transported by virtual reality to hurricane-ravaged Puerto Rico. Yes, I think the first place that we want to go today is is Puerto Rico. You can can get a sense of some of the the damage here that that hurricane... Uh, that the hurricanes have done. And um, I mean, this is one of the things that's really magical about virtual reality is you can get the feeling that you're really in a place. In fairness to them, there was a, they did talk about how maybe this kind of technology could be used to help generate fundraising, to help the people there. But it was just completely tone deaf. Do you it was think... like, let's go on a fantastic voyage down this trail of human horror. <laughs> are they? Are these just the new robber barons and they have this veil of cool about them because no one really understands cryptocurrency or how Facebook algorithm, algorithms work? And, and do you think they're just sort of masked? by the coolness and the technology and people love it people love the technology and it's letting them get away with so much these are the bernie madoffs of the future you know as best i can tell it's a ponzi scheme well i do think there's no sorry i think there's no coincidence that the emergence of cryptocurrency and bitcoin and how cool that is could only emerge once everyone who was a child during the depression has died I think there's no way somebody who lived through the Depression would fall for this. I mean, it might be great someday, but I think, don't you think a lot of people are going to get hurt in the meantime until they get there? There are already a lot of people who've lost their shirts in the the up and down of that thing. And there's a reason why uh, a lot of governments around the world are trying to throw up a a red light on this. Well, and that's part of it, right? Because it is not backed by any government, it is a real... um, libertarians dream, right? They really love this whole idea. I would just say this. I would just say this in the interests of fairness and some historical context. It seems to me in my lifetime, every generation thinks they're the superior ones who are going to clean up the mess that the prior generation left for them be more altruistic, uh, uh, turn capitalism from a malign force to a benign force. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm a baby boomer, okay? We we were... Uh, You'll admit to that? I am grudgingly <laughs> will admit to that. We, of I'm course, a Generation X, let me just say for the record. Okay, all right. Yeah, you're expecting <laughs> me to, to buy that? I had to slip that in okay, there. Okay, all right, if you say so. But, but you know... The baby boomers, we all, from yeah. as soon as we could speak, uh, started uh, informing the world about how we were the saviors. We were going to be the ones to remake it. We're being, meeting the baby boomers, shown up so badly now by the millennials in terms of their altruism, volunteerism rates. Are Simplicity. Off. I, I was stunned to learn when I first got to know Congressman Joe Kennedy mm-hmm. from Newton there. Uh, that uh, he was the first 
member of the Kennedy family to ever serve in the Peace Corps, created, of course, by his great uncle uh, and his family members back in the early 1960s. That really tells you something, an altruistic concept, and it took, I guess you'd call Joe Kennedy a millennial, right? Yes. It took all that time for a member of the family to actually give up two years of their life to go do it. fascinating. And the other thing that I think we've seen in the converse of the Kennedy family is uh, I remember listening to uh, a man who had written a book about his son being killed in either Iraq or Afghanistan. And he said, you know, go look, for instance, on the campus at Harvard and the plaques of the Harvard men, of course, who had died. Um, there are walls of the revolution, Civil War, war you know, uh, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam's the last big collection of names. Then there's one section, and he and his point was, when did the uh, the sort of upper classes of America decide it wasn't their job to defend America? When the draft there was ended. a time when part of your pride of being someone who would go to Harvard is that you would, it would immediately serve in the military and defend your country. There's an old saying that um, perhaps you can identify where it's from, Paula, but apparently Rose Kennedy used to repeat mm. it mm-hmm. to the Kennedy kids when they were younger. Uh, uh, to to whom, whom much is given, yeah. much is expected. Mm-hmm. And that's a thread that a lot of boomers lost a long time ago. Yeah. I see you have a book there, John. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, John, talk about the, uh, talk about your, your Silicon Valley We uh, Noam Cohen uh, was a tech writer uh, for the New York Times who did a lot of writing about the influence of the Internet on the larger culture. And he has turned his research into the movers and shakers behind the rise of Silicon Valley, their emergence as he puts it in the subtitle of his book, as both a political powerhouse and a social wrecking ball. Hmm. He's turned all this research into a book called The Know-It-Alls. And if that sounds as if there's a little bit of a sneer in his voice, when you listen to our conversation, you're you're not there imagining incorrectly. Is. Yeah, there is, and he really sticks it to them, you're going to recognize a lot of the dysfunctional leadership that's currently being exposed at Facebook, at Twitter, and across the board in in connection with the Russia investigation and just generally the yeah. impact of Uber. The, the Uber, the impact of the smartphone on, uh, on young people and on society. You're going to recognize a lot of the genesis of all of that in the know-it-alls. Noam, welcome to Boston. Nice to be here. Good to have you here. So you write in your book, America in 2016 lacked the stabilizing influences of traditional news-gathering organizations and community groups, vibrant local businesses, strong labor unions, aggressive government regulations, and engaged political parties, each of which had been undercut by Silicon Valley businesses and the libertarian principles of their founders, end quote. That's a pretty harsh indictment. Yeah, well, that's what I'm, uh, I'm arguing in the book, that, that uh, again, this, I, these libertarian ideas that were once very fringe, you know, I don't know if that's even like John Birch Society, really, really extreme uh, ideas have now become normal and mainstreamed. And, you know, in each case there, the idea that labor unions, rather than being an important check on corporate power, or these inefficient uh, entities, and if you read, you know, this book is based a lot on reading what what the the know it alls in, in the book 
what they've what they've said. And you know, we're talking about people like Mark Andreessen and Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Peter Thiel. And Jeff Bezos, and it's it is a, a mocking of these institutions that need to be disrupted. But actually, I would argue have had this really important stabilizing effect on our society. And we're now seeing what America looks like when it's not stable. So yeah, I understand it's extreme comment, but it's really when you belittle government, belittle regulation, when you belittle labor unions, and argue that they're sort of stopping progress, that is a very has a profound effect on society. So yeah, I stand by that comment. Yeah. Well, uh, in the early 20th century, the government moved to break up the railroad. Cartel. Uh, Ronald Reagan's administration broke up AT&T in the early 80s. And in the late 90s, uh, 19 states and the Justice Department sued Microsoft and broke it into two companies. Are we headed for another round of antitrust litigation to dilute the power of these tech giants? When you say are we headed there, I, I do all this is with a caveat that even we're talking about that our President Trump may uh, make some inklings of, of favoring breakup. I don't believe for a moment he's going to stop these big companies that are making such huge uh, revenue, in which he just general. Why not? Really, They're not political supporters of his. Well, Peter, Thiel, are Peter, Peter Thiel, who is a well, super true. prominent uh, yep. supporter, is a Facebook board member. I think, again, and a part of what this book was trying to do was to say even the idea that Peter Thiel is this extreme character rather than in fact a very mainstream figure he is like you know he's an earliest outside investor of Facebook he's a has the ear of, of uh, Mark Zuckerberg so he is a mainstream figure there I just think in general I think Trump tends to reward success in his mindset I'd be surprised unless he's a real particular grudge that he would break them up but I do think if there were some sort of a wave election that really a populist election uh, maybe from the left that would that would really be something on the on the table because I think the focus on Wall Street uh, kind of hit the fact that the, the biggest oligarchs in our society today are these Silicon Valley leaders. And when you look at like in the book, I talk about the example of Instagram, this company, which, again, had these roots in Stanford, which the book sort of talks a lot about. You know, but it was in two years in, it was acquired by Facebook for a billion dollars. It had 13 employees. It's like hard to know what that even means, like what that as an economy, as a society, when rewarding that level of wealth to, to no job creation. And of course, part of it was that Facebook bought Instagram because it was part of their monopolistic approach, which is that Instagram was growing as a social network. They needed to either be destroyed or acquired, so they've acquired Instagram, they acquired Snapchat. I mean, they did not acquire Snapchat. They've been fighting them, and they acquired WhatsApp. You know, so they are they are bound and determined to become the largest uh, social network and keep growing. And I think that's why they need to be challenged. So yes, I do think they need to be broken up. Well, we talked about uh, the Trump administration briefly here, and you mentioned, well, now maybe the left will uh, see these as the new oligarchs. And yet, uh, the track record of the left, if you can even call the Democratic Party establishment that, uh, hasn't been too promising. The Obama administration were essentially bootlickers for the tech uh, moguls that you talk about. If you go through the litany of, yeah, I mean, at Amazon, you know, the spokesman there, at Uber, the, the Clinton-Obama uh, connections to Silicon Valley. And I, I don't know what that is about other than, you know, kind of wanting to be on the new, new thing and kind of embracing uh, that kind of what they would call innovation. But yeah, I do think it would require a different kind of wave election than just simply Hillary Clinton. It's no question if Hillary Clinton had won, you know, someone like Sheryl Stanberg would be, uh, you know, who's Facebook's, you know, COO would be, uh, the, you know, would be in the Treasury Department, arguably could be Treasury Secretary. And that would be a very different world than I'm describing or wanting. Yeah. Talking with Noam Cohn, author of The Know-It-Alls, The Rise of Silicon Valley as a Political Powerhouse and Social Wrecking Ball. And you know, like anybody else, I like a good horror story. Mm -hmm. 
you were let if there is no effort to rein in or break up these monoliths, if they continue down the path they're on, what are we looking at in another? 10 years. What's the, yeah, what's the, the worst future case scenario? Shock? Yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, you would think if you were going to really, you know, obviously Facebook pushes back on this description, but if you were to see Facebook as a real enabler of social division, of, outs- of other countries affecting our election, I mean, it creates a scenario where people are really manipulated. You know, what's the worst scenario you're talking about? Like kind of bread and circus is kind of a world where people, where they, companies know intimately about us, manipulate us, get us angry. I mean, you were mentioning Orwell, and Orwell obviously was focused on government, but I'm sort of talking about these private companies. I mean, there is an aspect of the Goldstein kind of just three minutes of hate that goes on online already. And if you imagine if they're really, people were really working the levers, yeah, it would be a pretty scary scenario, no? I mean, these companies with knowing so much about us and knowing how to, having tools to manipulate us so well. It's a very, yeah, otherwise, otherwise people, I guess, would have to sort of leave the service, and that would be the question. Well, more immediately, here in the Boston area, we, like several hundred other American cities, are sort of like the family dog on, our, on his or her back, paws in the air, belly exposed, praying for Amazon to bring uh, their second corporate headquarters here, along with its 50,000 jobs, quite a, 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 a tantalizing morsel there. Uh, so I, I think many people around here are especially curious about what that would mean. Now, in your book, you describe Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, you describe his, quote, unalloyed libertarian faith in markets as the path to a moral workplace and a moral society. He had convinced himself that the market would somehow protect workers, end quote. What are the implications of that should he become essentially the economic king of our city? Yeah, so that, uh, and I was thinking about like what, what's going on when we talk about the worst case scenario is, is a, a world, think about when you don't have labor unions, you don't have regulation, it's this idea that, you know, if you're mistreated, if there, someone mistreats you in an airport, you tweet it out and go, can you believe American Airlines did this to me? And that works with a lot of followers and it's a certain, it's almost like your own personal, it's the hyper-individualization of everything. Like, I have an individual relationship with American Airlines, it's for me to fix it. Rather than I'm just a person who should be treated well because I'm a person. So I think that's kind of what we're talking about with Bezos and the um, his employees. That quote, for me, came from the react, his reaction to an article in the New York Times talking about how mistreated, how, how unhappy the even white-collar employees at Amazon were. And his answer was like, they can't be unhappy because they could just go to another company. These are talented people, and if they stay here, obviously they're happy. I know I would never have a company that would be like that. And obviously, people point out that they're in Seattle. You can't just relocate. Maybe you have other reasons for staying there. It's a very it's this it's this blind faith in the market that that there's a, a there's a efficient marketplace where people are just always deciding what's best for them, and it doesn't recognize the reality of the world. So that's yeah. So you're talking about him as a potential leader here, yeah, it's this faith that the market will solve things. We don't need rules to sort of, and, and norms to solve things. It's just everyone's going to be an individual actor. I mean, I was telling you before we sat down to talk here that one of the most iconic local companies here is the Market Basket supermarket chain. And everyone around here remembers a few years ago how the ununionized workers at Market Basket, who were treated extraordinarily well by their owner over the years, rose up and basically uh, through a unilateral job action, uh, joined in by truckers and the customers themselves, uh, resolved a dispute 
dispute between co-owners of the company in favor of their more benevolent owner, and they've gone on to thrive. Here comes Jeff Bezos with Whole Foods under his wing and all sorts of talk about, you know, moving shopping, grocery shopping onto the web at a level that's never before been experienced. You know, what happens to a a company like Market Basket and more importantly to that model of, gee, if you treat your workers like kings, they'll perform like kings. Yeah, because I mean, what you're pointing out, why do we have antitrust regulation? I mean, it, Peter Thiel, one of the characters who's booked this outside investor, first outside investor in Facebook, writes that monopolies are what any company should do. That's the only way you make money. He's saying if you really have a hyper-competitive, fair, competitive market, everyone's like cutting costs you know, and prices and no one make, makes any money. So fundamentally, these people are being uh, are doing what is efficient so they can win. So. They're not looking at the larger social consequences, is all I'm saying. I, I, so, of course, how, how are they? Amazon is doing all these uh, steps, cutting costs, treating workers the way they treat them, so they can keep acquiring things and keep being the dominant force in the market. And that's the drive. And that's what's sort of scary about a lot of these Silicon Valley companies, that they are all driven to grow, 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 often before they even have business models. Just get the biggest audience. You know that you'll have figure out the business model later. So. It makes it. It makes this kind of a battle to the death in market. It's a. It's a scary world where there is just extreme competition for everything. And I, in the book, I talk about this guy Reed Hoffman, who is a founder of LinkedIn, wrote a book called The Startup of You, which to me gave me chills. We talk about what's a chilling future. The idea that we're all in this kind of competition for, you know, our livelihoods every day. We're out there fighting. Even in, in, instead of like, there's no net, no safety net to protect us. And I think about even when Jeff Bezos issued this press release about Amazon selling, uh, reaching I think 100 billion in sales or something. He wrote about how it was a great achievement, but like you have to keep every day you begin anew. And it's like never, it's just constant warfare. That's the way I look at it, which could make sense if you like love ca- capitalism and love competing, but it doesn't seem like a good way to organize society to have constant warfare for what, you know, your daily bread. This isn't the way it should go. But come on, Jeff Bezos says the market will protect us. He definitely believes that. It yeah. certainly protected him. Yeah. yeah. Bill Gates and his wife are among the most philanthropic people in the world. Mark Zuckerberg and his wife have given huge amounts of money to charity. Bezos, I guess, not so much? Uh, not yet. Anyway, he's got other projects. It depends. You know, he's often, even when you're talking about uh, these other charities, they're often done in very, uh, they're still done in a know-it-all style, right? They're not there was a, I think his name, um, the head of Salesforce.com out in uh, San Francisco was sort of talking about how we have to get together to like help improve schools and poor neighborhoods or something. And on Twitter, someone wrote back, it's called taxes. You know, that is how, that's how we're supposed to do things. Like we're not supposed to count on the largesse of even, you know, well-minded people like uh, Bill Gates. We're supposed to have taxes and a society and a democracy. And partly what this book is trying to say is these are very anti-democratic people. They don't believe in the, in the collective. They think that the smartest should rule. And they worry that if you have a democracy, the, the, the dumb rule. And I can't sit there and say that our current election doesn't give you pause, but uh, you know, I believe in democracy. I think that's sort of what this is a fight over fundamentally. And if you, if you think about what the stakes are, that's what they are. You note in the book, quote, we have revered these social tamperers. Seems like just lately since the election, all the backlash against the fake news and Facebook and Twitter's negligence in regulating what was going on. Uh, Congressional hearings now where these companies are being called on the carpet. Is the tide turning or will these folks, these know-it-alls with their deep pockets, figure out a way to put the genie back in the bottle? Uh, I I think the tide is turning. I was thinking uh, partly— 
people are pointing out an important thing that's happened almost symbolically is the idea that these sites are giving up the idea of we're a neutral platform. They ha- once you kind of open up that idea, then it really is going to, I think, lead to a bunch of other steps, at least I hope, of, of, of regulating them because you, they've gotten this far by the kind of myth of we don't care what we do. We're just a platform. Oh, is it? I remember like Al Franken, Senator Al Franken was asking, uh, you know, the head of uh, the lawyer, the top lawyer for Facebook, uh, you know, hey, can we just have a rule? You won't take rubles for political ads. And he was sort of like saying, that's a very good signal. I'm, I hear you. He was like, and Al Franken was like, can you just agree that that's a good rule? And he wouldn't agree to it because he didn't want Al Franken telling him and Facebook what their algorithm should be. And to me, it was like almost bad politics. Why wouldn't you just say, yeah, we're not going to take Russian rubles for American political ads. But so I think once that that gets broken, they start like listening to regulation. It could be it could change the tide. I hope I'm hopeful. Once that gets broken, I hope so. Yeah. Once they kind of acknowledge that they are not, you know, can't all be secret, and it can't just be that they're neutral platforms and have no stake in this. That they're almost like outside watching the train crash instead of causing it. You know. Do you expect this to become an issue in the next couple of election cycles? I really do. I really think it's. Uh, I think it's hard to avoid. The, the wealth is so extreme. The effects we've seen are so profound. You've got to think, you're, you're the political expert. You've got to think when it starts affecting elections, that, that politicians, you know, antenna go up. It's like one thing if it's just wreaking havoc on our working people, if it's like actually affecting how elections are going to be run, might get their attention. Yeah, I, 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 am, I do think it's going to be something we talk about a lot. The book is published by New Press. The title, The Know-It-Alls, The Rise of Silicon Valley as a Political Powerhouse and Social Wrecking Ball. The author is Noam Cohn. Noam, thank you. Pleasure. Nice talking to you, John. Well, Paula, this was fun, and uh, the ideas for topics that we're talking about here today have come from all different sources. I'd like Mm -hmm. to add another one, which is our listeners. Yes. Uh, There's a million podcasts. We know you have many, many choices of how to invest your time. And in order to be part of that mix, we think we could really benefit from hearing from you about what kinds of things you'd like to hear us talk about. I mean, we are sitting here at a major Boston TV station. We both worked in the media, not just here, but elsewhere for a lot of years. God, I've worked in and just about every branch of the media, magazines, newspapers, radio, and now this. So it would be great to hear from our listeners about future topics you'd like to hear. We would love to hear from you, suggestions, uh, a sign-off we're looking for. We would love one of those. And John, your Twitter handle is? At Keller at Large, K-E-L-L-E-R-A-T-L-A-R-G-E. And I am at Paula Eben, WBZ, and this is Studio WBZ. Thanks for joining us. Great. That's the first time we said the name of the show. <laughs> That's okay, right? What's the Is name of the right? show? Studio WBZ. Is it? Studio WBZ. Oh, God. Did I say Studio WBZ? Sorry. <laughs> well, you didn't say it. Did I say WBZ? Did I say Studio BZ? I think you said Studio BZ. Okay. Yeah. Why don't we just redo just the very beginning of very the top. top to mention it? You can't do that. That's fake. Yeah, oh. it's fake.